Good evening, everyone. Good evening, welcome. My name is Minou Shafiq, and I'm the director of the London School of Economics and Political Science. And welcome to this lecture tonight on Can We Be Happier? Seems like there's no more important question to ask. We are very fortunate to have Richard Laird, who will be speaking this evening. Uh, he, he will give a short presentation, and then he and I will do an in-conversation, followed by questions from the audience. Now, Richard is one of those big figures in public life who kind of needs no introduction, so I won't waste too much of your time, but I'll just give you a short synopsis. Richard told me this evening that he has been at the LSE for 56 years. Uh, which is kind of <laughs> lucky LSE. It clearly made made him happy. Um, he started off life uh, as a well. He started off at the LSE as a labour economist who spent most of his career thinking about unemployment and inequality. Um, but he was he has since then become one of the first economists to work on happiness as his main current research interest. He's always believed, like the 18th century Enlightenment thinkers, that society should be judged by its ability to make its people happy. And in 2005, he wrote a book, Happiness, Lessons from a New Science, which was published in 20 languages and was really the beginning of happiness science spreading around the world. And again, in 2018, he co-authored a book which was published by the Princeton University Press called The Origins of Happiness. Tonight, he will be talking about his latest book, Can We Be Happier? Evidence and Ethics. I should also just mention that in addition to being a prolific writer about this subject, uh, Richard is also an activist and influencer on a global scale. He co-authored the, the Good Childhood Report and has, act, has been actively involved in promoting mental health for young people through healthy minds. He also uh, was a big backer of the move in the UK under David Cameron's government to make well-being a central part of policymaking in the UK. He's produced reports for the World Economic Forum, for the OECD, and is a, one of the co-authors, along with Jeff Sachs and John Helliwell, of the World Happiness Report. Since then, he's also been made a member of the House of Laws and is uh, currently on its Economic Affairs Committee. Uh, but really, I can think of no one who's done more to promote the study of happiness and well-being as a discipline and done more to shape widespread public thinking about the topic. So I will now invite Richard to come and say a few words, and then he and I will have a chat about his recent research. Richard. Well, thank you very much, uh, Minouche, and thank you all for coming. Uh, actually, I first came to LSE as a student, an, a master student, uh, 61 years ago. <laughs> a master student in sociology, by the way. Um, okay, well, I was talking to um, a civil servant friend of mine, and he told me the following story. Uh, some years ago, um, he had gone with the Bishop of Lincoln uh, to open a small primary school classroom. And there were the children sitting there and the bishop and he sitting facing them. And the bishop opened by saying, uh, now boys and girls, uh, which of you can tell me what is gray and furry and lives in trees? And um, 
The children looked at each other in astonishment. And then one put up his hand and he said, uh, Please, sir, I know the answer's meant to be Jesus, but isn't it a squirrel? <laughs> so, you have to ask the right question. Um, and I think that this is the right question. Um, not only can we be happier, uh, but how can we be happier, not just separately by each of us pursuing our own happiness, but how as a society uh, can we improve the happiness um, of our lives? Now, as it happens, uh, that was exactly the question which the founders of the LSE were asking when they decided to found the LSE, because Sidney and Beatrice Webb were strong believers that you should judge a society by the happiness of the people, uh, and they wanted much more solid evidence about how that could be done, and that's why they founded the LSE. Um, after a, a decade or so, um, they appointed a new director, one of the greatest directors we've had, uh, William Beveridge. And he was another person who also believed uh, that the test of whether we were doing the right thing was whether we were producing um, a happy society, as happy as it could possibly be managed with the resources available. So it's not a new idea, and of course it, even then it wasn't a new idea. It went back to the 18th century. I think this idea was the most important idea of the modern age, that we should judge a state of affairs by uh, how happy people are. Are they flourishing? Are they enjoying their lives? Are they satisfied with their lives? Are they fulfilled? Um, so uh, let me, if I can find how to do this. Let's see if this works. Oh, it did work, yes. There we go. We're going to make that safe. Okay. Okay, so uh, there is a, the. Oh, I've, I've gone too far, sorry. So, sorry. so there, there, there we are. The happiness uh, that uh, we judge the state of a society uh, by the level of happiness, and the objective we should be uh, aiming at is the greatest amount of happiness. But then I'm qualifying that, and I'm not sure whether the web agreed or not with this, but I'm qualifying it by saying, especially we want a society where there are as few people who are really unhappy as possible. So happiness is the goal for a society, um, but particularly the avoidance of unhappiness um, is the goal that we should be caring for. Um, if you accept that, two big things follow. One, the basic principle of moral philosophy, and the other, the basic principle of political philosophy. So the basic principle of moral philosophy would be, what should I do in any situation or in my life as a whole? I should be trying to produce the most happiness uh, that I can, subject to the qualification in brackets. Um, what is the basic principle of political philosophy? That the, the aim of government uh, should be to produce uh, the greatest happiness, create conditions for the greatest happiness, um, again, subject to what's in brackets there. So let me sort of work forward in my brief remarks <laughs> from the personal to the, the social. So you've already seen this one. 
what, what should be the, our goal in life? I mean, the fundamental question that everybody, I'm sure, has considered many times. And if you ask what is the goal that we are mainly offering young people these days, I suppose you would say it's more than anything else personal success, um, to get good grades, to get a good job, to get a good income, um, compared with other people. And of course, any goal which is compared with other people, when you go to the level of society and add it up across society, uh, is a zero-sum goal, because for every winner there has to be a loser. That's not good for the losers. But it's also not so good for the winners, because that sort of society is so stressful. And we've got really interesting evidence uh, that is in the book and also um, in the World Happiness Report of increasing st stress in all societies as they're all becoming uh, more and more individualistic. So we, don't, we, we need to get away from that towards a goal which is positive some in the sense that, that I try and uh, contribute as much as possible to the happiness of others and get as much as possible of my happiness from making other people happier. Uh, and um, that's, of course, why this rule is so important. So if, if we lived that way, uh, we would achieve uh, a positive sum result. And I think that goal is a very inspiring one to, to be talking to even a five or six-year-old about. I mean, what am I here for? Everybody goes through an, a, a, a sort of major <laughs> uh, crisis of angst sometime when they're 16 or 17. But why not help them have the right idea before they have to go through the, the period of angst? Um, and I think that this is really important because in a, a largely post-religious age where people in previous generations got some sort of idea uh, that was more than just pure selfishness um, for what they're meant to be doing, uh, now, if you don't have some sub substantive idea there, uh, the default position is absorption with yourself. And, and that is becoming uh, a big problem, as we know. Social media not uh, helping a lot. Um, so we've got to have the right idea, but how do we get the right idea to stick and to, and, and to even get ourselves to live according to the right idea? Um, I think we need organisations. Um, and in a post-religious age, we've got to have some new organisations. Uh, and that's why um, I've been involved in uh, this organisation called Action for Happiness, uh, where people meet regularly uh, in groups to remind themselves of what really matters, um, to be inspired and supported by other members of the group um, on the basis of really good materials that the organisation can supply. So I think uh, that's a, a really important institutional development uh, that we've got to have if we need a happier society. Now, of course... I'm going to do something daring. <coughs> now, now, obviously, if we're to have a, a society of people who are happy, <coughs> people have got to care for themselves, look after themselves, uh, as well as other people. And 
but are important developments here and on the social front, as I'll come to later, based on the new science uh, of happiness. And I think one of the important discoveries or rediscoveries of the uh, last century was that if you want to improve your feelings, you can do it to some extent by changing your thoughts. And this originated in cognitive behavioral therapy in the West, led on to positive psychology. Also from the East, you've got the ideas of mindfulness. All these ideas uh, are that you can, by um, attending to your thoughts, separate yourself from your negative thoughts and create space for positive thoughts about your, uh, your situation and what you can, can do. Um, so that's your self-care. We do have methods of doing that to some extent. Um, but also, uh, we need, when we're thinking about other people, we need evidence of what really matters to them, what's going on for them. Um, so we need, in general, evidence of what sorts of things are really making a difference to other people. Um, but we also need evidence on what we can do about it. Um, we've got uh, a lot of naturalistic evidence. You mentioned the origins of happiness. That's naturalistic <coughs> evidence on what matters to people. We've got far too little evidence on what things that we do actually improve a situation. And there's a mass of um, well-intentioned uh, changes that people have made when they've been evaluated that didn't do any good at all. So we need a whole range of, of experiments and I'm, I'm going to report a few of them because uh, about a half of the book uh, is about experiments, successful experiments that did make a difference. <coughs> and I'll come to those in a moment but first I just want to go uh, uh, to the naturalistic evidence of, of what matters to people. Right, um, so these are the factors, the main factors that matter in order of importance, certainly the personal ones in order of importance, mental and physical health, human relationships, and family at work and the community, including having work if you want it, and the income is uh, less important than any of those above, and I'll show you some figures in a second, but also of course there are the general social uh, climate in which you live, as opposed to the, these personal factors, um, which differ very much between countries. We know a lot about that by looking at inter-country differences in the World Happiness Report every year. Freedom, quality of government, trust, social support, um, and obviously peace. But I just want to give you some evidence about these personal factors. So, here's a question. What things about a person best explain um, where they are on the distribution of happiness from very uh, extreme misery to uh, great happiness. Um, and the, the top factor is mental health. That's a very simple variable. Just Have you or haven't you ever been diagnosed with depression or anxiety disorders? Incredibly important fact about people. Then, interestingly, comes the quality of work. That's an important relationship. Um, and uh, then another important relationship, your family relationships, uh, and then your physical health. health and then the income um, is right uh, below those. Uh, and in fact, what, what these numbers mean, that if you wanted to 
see, ask what fraction of the variance of, of happiness uh, is due to the uh, inequality of income. It's only 1%. That's a striking thing. It says that all of you who are doing social science here, you have to chuck away all the concepts of a deprivation that you started with and think about the person is deprived if they're low because of any of these reasons. If they can't enjoy their life for any of these reasons, not only if they can't enjoy their life but they haven't got enough money. So let's come on now to what can be done and who can do what. So half of the book is about these different occupations and what can be done to make people happier um, with whom you're concerned uh, on the basis of proper experimental evidence with a control group and all of that. Um, and obviously um, the first thing is can do schools matter? Uh, and two pieces of evidence are extraordinary actually um, in our book on the origins of happiness. The first is that if you take children, the best predictor of whether they'll become happy adults is not their grades, uh, but how emotionally, uh, their emotional health at the age of 16. That's an extraordinary fact. Um, second, can schools do anything about it? Yes, schools do uh, as much as parents to affect the emotional health of people age 16. So they've got to do it better. So the goal of schools uh, should include very strongly the well-being of the children. Uh, they should be measuring it, uh, and they should be teaching life skills uh, of an evidence-based type, uh, I would say at least once a week, and of also have a generally happy atmosphere, of course. Let's move on to managers. Here's an extraordinary fact that the time of the week when people are least happy is when they're with whom? Their line manager. <laughs> um, it, it's a terrible reflection on what is taught in business schools. Terrible. It, it, it shows what really we've got into a, a really abominable state for which business schools bear a heavy responsibility. Um, we need to involve workers more in decisions about how their work is organised. Uh, we need to stop frightful arrangements of forced ranking. Um, that cause a lot more misery than the happiness that they generate. Um, going on to the community, uh, we obviously, uh, as human beings, depend hugely on social connections in our community as well as in our family and at work. Um, and we, we need for that to, to really function. Uh, really good institutions uh, for child development uh, for family support, uh, for supporting old people, loneliness, uh, all of that, uh, and of course for supporting people financially uh, when they're in trouble. I would call all of that the social infrastructure, and I, I, I get more and more angry now when I hear every morning, actually, on the Today programme, how the top priority for Britain is to improve our physical infrastructures, which have been so long neglected. What we've done in the last 10 years is to dismantle the social infrastructure. Surely rebuild that before you uh, put uh, billions into taking 10 minutes off the journey from London uh, to Birmingham. 
So these are all preventive things for producing general uh, well-being. But of course, if uh, people get into real difficulty with their mental health, we've got really good cost-effective therapies um, that we uh, should be making much more widely available. And then the, the profession that I end with is science. Um, because, of course, uh, the reason why climate change matters is because we think that the people of the future matter as much as we do. Now, that is not the normal view in economics, which uses a discount rate, which makes 2010, uh, 2100 um, pretty irrelevant. So we've got to, using the happiness argument, uh, establish the claims of future generations and get something done about that. I'm getting near to the end. Um, with the role of government. So, as I said, the role of government uh, should be to create the conditions for greatest happiness, uh, and the method, therefore, if you've got a fixed amount of money, is to choose the policies that produce uh, the highest amount uh, of increase in happiness uh, for every pound. Are governments likely to do this? Well, it's in their interests, because my colleague... George Ward has shown that in European elections since 1970, the um, votes cast for the government are, are better explained by the happiness of the people than by the state of the economy. So it's not the economy stupid. Um, and this is now being confirmed in many countries all over the world uh, that satisfaction with life is a better uh, variable to explain elections uh, than the state of the economy. But can the government do this? Can they really do anything much about happiness? Well, we've got this huge uh, growing science, social science, 2,000 peer-reviewed articles on happiness each year, even 200 in economic journals. <laughs> so um, that's something, but it's a little difficult to absorb. Uh, which is why I'm recommending this book, <laughs> which is a sort of con condensed view of what's going on with numbers that people can, can use. Um, so, so sort of where we've got to in social science, I think it's roughly like this. Um, if we're interested in happiness as a final outcome, here are a list of things that impinge on happiness. Um, we're beginning to know something about these, all these linkages here. But we've also got wonderful scholars who are looking at all those linkages over there as to what's determining health, employment, income, etc., etc. In fact, all the different departments at LSE are feeding into those, those arrows over on the right-hand side there. Uh, so this is, to my mind, a, a map of what the LSE should be doing. <laughs> but it needs to strengthen this bit. Uh, so um, I'm hoping that uh, my book and our discussion this evening might help to bring that about. So I would like the school to have a new motto, uh, <laughs> uh, to, uh, to know the causes of happiness. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> um, I, I, I would like to see... <laughs>
I would like to see master's courses uh, in every department, not just psychology and social policy. Uh, I would like to see a professorship in this field. And I want to see, uh, in, in the student side, uh, student branches of Action for Happiness. Anyone interested, please tell me. Um, so we are, we are really, uh, I think, on the, the edge of a really important uh, happiness revolution. Um, we've got a lot more understanding of how to increase happiness. We've got millions of people who've changed their lives um, using techniques that really help them to build their own happiness and that of others. And we've got governments coming round. Uh, the OECD and the European Council have said well-being should be the objective of governments. But these are the three countries that have done something and have well-being budgets. Uh, they're all led by women. Uh, so here's the great opportunity. Why doesn't a large country, led by a large male, <laughs> adopt well-being as the goal of its government? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Richard, for redesigning the LSE for, for us and redesigning our purpose and giving us a vision for a different way forward. Let me just start with a few questions and then I'll open it up to the audience. I want to start with the philosophy um, and whether one could justify elevating happiness to the purpose of, uh, of our society. Now, I'm an economist by training, like, like, like you. Uh, there are lots of, you know, we, GDP is flawed, but we know what it is. Happiness, well-being, many debates about measurement, about is it relevant in countries which are very poor, where raising incomes is still a really important priority. How do you, how do you justify elevating this uh, philosophy to the purpose of our society? Well, I mean, I think there are lots of things we care about. We certainly care about income. Uh, we care about health. We care about freedom and so on. But, and you can ask, well, why do we care about these things, including happiness? And on all the other things, you can say, well, we care about income because poverty makes people miserable. Health, sickness makes you miserable. Freedom, uh, loss of freedom makes you miserable. If you ask, why does it matter? Um, how you feel, you, there's no answer. Uh, I mean, I think our brains are wired to the, the position that we naturally think of feeling good as being in, uh, the, the, the intrinsic good mm. and the others as means to that end. Right. But you don't ask us to just think about our own happiness. You ask us to think about making other people happy. Mm. Uh, and I think your thoughts about the movement like Action for Happiness are, that's very much embedded in that philosophy. How, um, in a selfish age, how are you going to get people to care about other people's happiness? Well, I think how you're brought up um, affects your assumptions very much indeed. And I think, you know, that we do need a cultural revolution um, because we, we've gone down into this very individualistic uh, culture, um, partly because of the collapse of religion, partly through the, some of the weirder views of economists, um, 
<laughs> and I think you know we, you you can change that. But but the other point is, of course, that um, if you help other people, it certainly makes you feel good on the whole. Not always. So I'm not saying that every good if you do what I'm defining as as uh, good behaviour. Um, will always make you feel better. That's not true. Mm. Um, but in general, we've got masses of evidence this, that people who do spend more of their time helping other people are uh, happier. And there's experimental evidence which shows that if, more of, if people do more of it, they, they become happier. Uh, so th there's an, a sort of long-term interest that we all have um, in a less selfish and more altruistic society. Um, partly because other people will benefit, but also because we will, in the end, ourselves benefit from getting away from this terrible self-absorption. Mm. <coughs> you also talk a lot about what different... I mean, I, I just... Uh, do, 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 I wonder how many people here have been told you, you've got to make the best of yourself, that your duty, your duty is to yourself, not to society. Your duty is to yourself. You, your duty is to make the most of who you are. Mm. I think this is a terrible way of talking to somebody. Mm. Actually, just on that, you mentioned culture. Um, this sort of individualistic, you must make the best of yourself, mm. uh, is, a, is quite a Western phenomenon. Mm. Do you want to say something about other parts of the world, Asia, Africa, which have slightly more communitarian approaches to Yes. No, I think that, that ha there is a value in that. And somehow or other, we, ha we have to develop um, a more other-oriented kind of culture. What is interesting is that the Scandinavian countries, which are at relatively, compared with Middle Eastern and Far Eastern countries, non-collectivist, Yes. That they still have this, in fact, they have developed and cultivated this ethic that rather than to show how, how, how different you are from other people, uh, you, you should focus on what you have in common with them. Uh, and you, instead of trying to show that you're better than them, you should be, be helping them mm. or engaging in some common pursuit. Mm. Um, this, this is a very, very interesting difference. And I, I, I strongly encourage people to read. There are now hundreds of books about Denmark. Yes. Um, <laughs> we all are, want to be Denmark. They are actually all very interesting. Um, it, is, it, is, it is a different world. And I remember going to the meeting of the, the Danish Economic Association, and people are laughing all the time. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was really extraordinary. And, and then, then there was a dinner, and some guy got up and talked a lot of nonsense. And... and you know, instead of being irritated, people were <laughs> really rather sweet to him. <laughs> you know, we know you, etc. Anyway, anyway. You, you mentioned uh, the destruction of social infrastructure mm. uh, in countries like the UK. What would rebuilding that social infrastructure look like for you? Well, we would first stop all the cuts we've had. You know, we've dismantled all the children's centres We've cut back social services and child protection. Um, we've largely eliminated youth services. Mm. Um, we've cut back on 
not only the sort of physical social care of elderly people, but the, 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 the social social care where old people meet in centres and have some sort of a social life. We've treated it as though these things are just peripheral. Uh, and because, on the whole, people, you know, these are more vulnerable people, they, they don't complain. Um, but I do think it, it's, it's really, really weird that the top priorities are now seen to be rebuilding all of that and incidentally doing something about the benefits which um, didn't even figure that prominently in my own party's manifesto. Um, It's just extraordinary that we we, we should be trying to get from London to Birmingham 10 minutes to ask that. (laughs) For over £100 billion. Um, Could you finally just say something and I'll open it up to the audience. Much of what you're advocating goes completely against the current trends in society with social media kind of encouraging self-absorption and self-representation and self-glorification and and society becoming much more competitive and stressful, as you pointed out. How do you see persuading people and politicians to buck that trend? Yeah. I mean, there are two problems. Uh, one is the personal one that you say, the other is the political one. Yeah. And hate speech, I mean, we have to do whatever the Germans are doing, and, and everybody will have to do more than that to, to eliminate hate speech and, and cyberbullying. I mean, this is quite yeah. disgusting. And we, we will do. Um, how, how you avoid exhibitionism on the social media, which... Uh, basically um, make so many more people miserable than they make happy. Mm. Um, I think you know, it can only be done by this kind of a cultural change that it's, it's not fashionable to show off in that way. Mm. I mean, when we grew up socially, <laughs> it was very bad form to show off. I mean, now it's become accepted that you show off. And people sort of know that what you put on, uh, on Instagram it's not the whole of your life, it's just the best bit of it. Um, but but um, I can imagine a world in which that becomes bad form. Yeah. I, I, would, I, would, I would like to think that it did. Uh, I'll just say one thing which I think is really interesting, that I mean, new technology always creates massive problems. So guess how many people were killed on the roads in England um, by cars uh, in 1930? Relative to now, let's say. But I'd like to give you the answer. Three and a half times more people were killed then, as now, although the number of cars have probably gone up by a multiple of 100 or something. We have just... When, these, when things come in which have benefits, but, but also terrible harms associated with them, we just regulate them. I mean, we, this is just what happened, has always happened throughout human history, and it'll happen again. Okay, thank you. Let me open it up, uh, and I'll ask you, if you don't mind, to stand uh, just so we can see you, and if you could introduce yourself very briefly and ask a question. Uh, We've got a mic in the back. I will take the woman right there at the end. Uh... Hello. Um, I work for an organization called Social Finance, and we set up a few programs around social isolation, mental health, etc. I was interested in the point you made around youth services 
and the other cuts to, to public services. And in the model that you're describing, I wonder where the responsibility for taking a, a more of a happiness lens to decisions like that would sit and who would be accountable. Would that sit with local decision makers or would that be something that was enforced from, from the top and then has some way of being kind of implemented at a local level? So, yeah, is kindly going to... <laughs> yes, so the question is, uh, cuts and things like youth services, uh, where would you see responsibility for preventing that happening? At the local level or should it be done at, at central, at some central government level to try and reverse those kinds of decisions? Well, um, I mean, A, I'm, I'm in favour of more local power, um, but you have to have some resources as well. Mm. Uh, and the, the areas which have got a, a low tax base have got to have their resources supplemented. And that's one of the more diabolical things going on at the moment. The, the rate support grant, which used to transfer money from the central coffers um, to the poorer parts of the country, has actually been abolished. It's, I think this is the last year uh, of it. This is a completely extraordinary thing to be happening in our country. Um, that has to change, but I, I don't think that this business about take-back control um, can be satisfied without actually taking back more local control. I mean, that was what people ultimately were objecting to. They didn't have enough control locally. Yes. Uh, let me take the gentleman in the middle there, and then I'll come. Uh, thank you very much for the presentation. Um, my name is Max, and I work in environmental consultancy. So, yeah, trying to make an impact um, with the work that we do. Um, kind of two questions are related. Um, one, which is, what event in history would you mark as the start of the age of individualism? So, when did it start? And then also, where and why did it start? And why are more and more people aspiring globally every day to kind of live life that way? So... When did individualism start in history, and where and why did that happen? <laughs> Good question. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, there's always been a pretty strong individual element that's there in our biology. Um, as you know, our, our biology has got kind of two contradictory elements in it, um, both of which were necessary for our survival. I mean, one, one is taking care of ourselves very strongly, but the other is cooperating with, with others. Um, and you can see how both of them um, have contributed to the, the, the survival of, of, the, of the gene pool <laughs> that they were in. Um, so when did it start? Um, I, I mean, economic individualism has, has certainly was there in, in ancient Athens <laughs> um, and, and obviously before. Um, but I think that um, I mean, it's the, the, modern I, I would think uh, some philosophers here will know more than I do about it but I, I would have said that in moral philosophy um, the, the, the ideas were normally um, put, put an, a, a strong obligation on people to um, do what was useful for other people um, not only the, in, in religion, but also in, in, in ordinary, non-theistic uh, moral philosophy. Um, that was true of utilitarianism, and it, and it was true of Kantianism. Mm. Um, Kantianism slightly, could be slightly more individualistic because it, it, seemed to, it seems in many ways to be so, so focused on what you shouldn't do rather than what you should do. I think why I, one of the big appeals of the 
what, what I've called the happiness principle. Um, is it's, it doesn't say that morals is only about what you should avoid doing. Um, it's about you, what you should positively do. Um, you should take opportunities to do things for other people rather than just avoiding harming them. Um, it's slightly odd that there are two books by John Stuart Mill that seem to say opposite things, things about yeah. this. <laughs> but obviously the utilitarian <laughs> point is the, is the right one. Uh, that a, a good society is one in which people look out for ways to help people. Okay, I'm going to come to the front of the room. I'll take the woman here and the gentleman over here. Hello, my name's Amy and I'm retired. Um, American presidential candidate Andrew Yang says it's time for the US government to start measuring prosperity using human as well as monetary indicators. And on his website, he gives some examples. Um, for example, life expectancy, happiness, mental health, marriage and divorce rates, substance abuse and related deaths. And my question is, why aren't British politicians saying the same thing? Well, in a sense, we did. This is what David Cameron was about when he introduced the measurement of happiness um, by the Office of National Statistics. So we now ask questions of 300,000 people um, about how satisfied are with their, with their lives, how do they feel their lives are worthwhile, were they happy yesterday, were they anxious yesterday. Um, we, are, we are measuring it, but we are not currently using those measurements to choose what to do yes. um, with our money. Uh, and you know, what we're pushing for um, is that uh, the, the Treasury should essentially be asking each department, when it's making its case for money, to say, how actually does this make a difference to people's lives? Mm. If you can't show that this makes a difference to people's lives, we're not going to give you the money. Mm. And I think that, that that transformation has got to happen. We had some success with the so-called Treasury Green Book yes. when it was revised. Yes. So it's opened the door to that, but it, it's, it's not being done because we haven't got politicians. Um, and we've got parliamentarians, so we produced um, the all-party parliamentary uh, group on so-called well-being economics, um, produced uh, a, a version of what a spending review would look like if it was targeted at well-being. So we've got to push for that. But you show pretty clearly that uh, people vote based on their well-being. Yes. Why aren't politicians sitting up and listening to that? I think it's I think partly because people think the government can't do anything about these more <coughs> private aspects of their life. Mm -hmm. um, so we've got to get a different idea based on the fact that perhaps in the past governments couldn't do that much about these things, but we now have you know, good evidence on what promoting, happiness promoting policies could be, good evidence on what unhappiness <laughs> removing policies uh, can do. And I think, you know, just as back in the mid 19th century, people didn't think the government should do anything about education. Mm. Um, these things have changed, <coughs> and health and so on. So it's partly. I think that people think that governments can't do much about it, and that's a matter of education. Um, uh, and it's partly recognising, I think, the void created by the 
the um, uh, decline of religion. Mm. Uh, people haven't, haven't faced up to the fact that this is a serious issue because these issues, like education, <laughs> one-time health and so on, I mean, they, they were thought to be for the churches. Now they're obviously for government. Mm. Gentleman here. Um, hi, uh, Rudy Parker. I work in technology startups. Um, Lord Layard, I uh, lived in the United States for 10 years um, in Boston, and there's a serious um, prescription drug ep epidemic going on in the northeast of the United States right now. Um, despite being an extremely strong economy um, and having strong <coughs> growth, they are now experiencing for the first time um, their life expectancy is falling. Yeah. And I wondered, firstly, whether you thought that's because people are becoming less happy. And secondly, I wondered if you'd done any research into happiness regarding life expectancy falling for the first time. Mm. I haven't, but of course our colleague Angus Deaton and his wife Anne Case have written a book about these deaths of despair, as they call them. Yes. Um, and there's, there's no doubt at all that this, this is reflecting an in, increasing um, degree of mental health problems um, reflected in shocking um, substance abuse but based a, a lot of it on, on completely unethical sale of product mm. by the pharmaceutical companies mm. um, but I think it is, it is a, a symptom of a society that's sort of taken its eye off the ball of what really matters it's, people seem to have lost, lost track of what could make sense of their lives they've got into uh, taking these substances, some of them because they had physical pain, but again, some of that physical pain itself actually came from mental pain mm. in the first place. Mm. I mean, as you as you probably know, most back pain can't be explained. That's right. That's right. Physically. <laughs> okay, I'm going to go to the back of the room again. Uh, I'll take the woman there and then the gentleman over here. Hi, my name is Sol, and I run fun well-being sessions at my company. I've got two questions for you. So one is, you didn't define what happiness is, and I know it's difficult because for some people, like a piece of chocolate can be happiness, but for some others, they need like 10K bonus. Um, my second question is related to how to measure happiness, because I find it hard to persuade people to pay for well-being sessions, especially when all you can do is use indicators such as stress level. Um, I was wondering what's the most effective way to measure that? Okay, so uh, define happiness. Chocolate versus a 10K bonus. And uh, how is the best way to measure happiness? Well, the, the way that, that most of us prefer if you're asking a single question, is overall, how satisfied are you with your life these days? A scale of naught to 10, naught extremely dissatisfied, or 10 extremely satisfied, or you can just give them a line and they mark off. That, that gives exactly the same results. Um, and this is, has all kinds of excellent properties, the answers to these questions. And first, they're quite well correlated with various brain measurements that you can take. Uh, so that they're correlated with something that is obviously objective. Um, secondly, they're quite good predictors. We've, we've seen how good they are at predicting voting. They're actually 
the best predictor that there is of forecasting whether you're going to die in the next 10 years. You know, if you take people aged over 50 and you ask them happiness questions and you have a medical examination, the happiness questions are better predictors of whether the person will live than the medical examination. I and mean, this is just extraordinary. Um, the, the, and they'll predict quitting and so on. Um, and then the other thing is that we can, as you see, explain them. I mean, the measure that I was using up there was life satisfaction uh, in that chart that I showed you. Um, Obviously, you can do more complicated things, like trying to monitor them over a period of time. And there have been diary reconstruction methods and the other methods. Uh, but I think that we've learned most about what determines a person's underlying happiness over a run of year, over, over a run of weeks, let's say, by that life satisfaction question. Mm. I once asked a Danish friend, why are the Danes always at the top of the happiness charts? And he said low expectations. <laughs> now, I'm sure you would not agree with that, and that answer. No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't agree with that. I mean, I think that um, one simple happiness equation would go like this. Happiness depends on two things. Um, the out, your outcome relative to your expectations. Okay, well then, the obvious thing to do is to reduce your expectations. Right. But, it also, but happiness also depends on your expectations, positively depends on your expectations relative to your capacities. I mean, you know, we, we are, well, goal-setting individuals. It's extraordinary. I mean, you put somebody down there and down, they pick up the Times crossword. <laughs> and what are the, why are they doing? They're setting themselves a goal. Hmm. Um, so we are goal-setting uh, animals. Um, and, and, and if you think of that equation, if you're mathematically minded, you'll see that there's an optimum level of expectations that, that will give, give the best possible outcome um, of, through the combination of those two ratios. Okay. Uh, gentleman right there. Uh, there's a mic coming behind you. Good evening. Um, my name is Rod Banner, and I co-founded an organization called Joytech.org. Joy. Our co-founded an organization called Joytech. Joy, excellent. Our concept... <laughs> Can I join? <laughs> Our concept is that the technology industry is the most powerful and affluent group of, of humanity, and their ingenuity has powered so many changes in society, many of which you alluded to earlier. But right now, we're sitting in an awkward time where technology companies need some sense of regulation. It's very difficult for government because the technology companies are more powerful than whole countries. And my sense is that we could use the energy and the momentum of those organizations to change the way that we all react to technology and we could use their ingenuity to take on board the academic learnings that people like you have discovered and augment the technology which we use every day and in this room to better effect joy in society. The question is how do we make that happen? Okay. Very good. So how do you, 
how do you use the capacity of the technology industry to enhance joy? How do you harness that huge potential for a different purpose, for the purpose of well-being? Yes. So, I mean, we've thought, of course, a lot about this um, in this action for happiness movement. Um, and like everybody else, we've said, surely we can spread happiness online. <laughs> uh, uh, we're doing it pro bono. Um, but, of course, uh, there are many people making smallish fortunes uh, through mindfulness online, um, advice online, mm. coaching online, <laughs> all kinds of things. Um, and I think that's great. I mean, I think it is, is a, lot, a, a big opportunity for people who might otherwise just, just uh, hide away in a corner. But that said, uh, I believe strongly that um, human beings were fundamentally made for face-to-face -face relationships. Uh, and that is the ultimately satisfying uh, form of human experience. Uh, and therefore, in, in the Action of Happiness movement, having started it as an online thing, we've con we've concentrating now very strongly on forming these groups. Um, again, I think people need very good material. So, um, I mean, how did Protestantism take off? It took off by printing the Bible uh, in the mother tongue. Uh, that was an incredible revolution um, brought about by a new technology, the, the, the printing. Um, so uh, I think we've got to find ways of using the new technology to nourish the, the age-old human, human needs which are for face-to-face -face contact. Technology is very good at putting people in touch with other like-minded people. So these groups that we have in Action for Happiness are, are, are local groups that they're established through technology. Um, they start with a course, for example. Each group starts with a course uh, led by volunteers in the group. Um, that course uh, is, is, again, materials uh, that transmitted uh, in a proprietary way online. Um, but ultimately, the magic is people talking to real people <laughs> and sharing their experience. See the woman on the corner there? And then I'll come to the woman here. Hi, I'm Sanashi. Thank you so much for the presentation. I'm just a student at LSE. Um, I wanted to ask... Just. <laughs> not accomplished That's anything great like those people who spoke. <laughs> uh, but I wanted to ask, how do you think this sort of extreme capitalism that we see has affected um, the sense of individualism that you were talking about that we see in the society nowadays? So how does extreme capitalism result in the kind of extreme individualism that we see in society today? What can be done about that? <coughs> I realize I didn't really answer that question, but we had a similar question before, didn't we? I mean, well, I think it is very interesting to, uh, to reflect on um, the, the extent to which um, the ethics of business have gone, and gone which, which have, have, have always been a bit dubious. <laughs> Um, how they've been controlled in the past and how in the, in the present they've almost been exalted 
I mean, the, the, the drive for individual success has been exalted relative to other drives um, to create you know, what is socially acceptable. Um, we've, we've almost taken the market as the, the paradigm for the whole of life. Mm. I mean, I, rem I, I, I remember just being shocked. I, I mean, I, I mean you, you've grown up with this phrase, but the marriage market. Yes. Uh, I, I hadn't heard this phrase until I was about 25. Mm. Um, it, it, it's a funny, I mean, it's a peculiar phrase, isn't it? Mm. Um, and the idea that you know, to set up a market in things is probably the most efficient thing you can do. If only you could think quite how to do it. And I'm sure that's in the mind of many tech people now. Mm. That we, if we can only set up markets, we can, all, all solutions, all problems are solved by voluntary exchange through markets. Mm. And that's not true, because for you, those of you who are economists here, that, that the whole of, of, of our background assumptions, our norms, uh, and so on, are a massive externality. Mm. You, you people don't think of this, but, but your, the whole ethical assumptions that we have in our society are an externality, mm. something that came at us from outside, we absorbed from outside, and affects how we behave to everybody else. Nothing to do with voluntary exchange between two people. So the philosopher Michael Sandel talks a lot about how we've extended the concept of markets to realms of our lives in which the market mechanism is not appropriate. Would you argue that markets are an inappropriate framework for thinking about happiness? No, uh, let, let's, let's also use the word competition, which is, also goes with it. Um, I am a strong believer in competition between organizations. Um, I think it's a way to keep them on their toes and stimulate um, improvement in innovation. Um, what has gone wrong has been that the word competition has, has come to be held to be a good thing, not only in relation to um, uh, uh, the, uh, um, interactions of organizations, but interactions of individuals within an organization. And the, the, what you don't want in an organization is everybody trying to to outdo everybody else, you want them to work as team players um, and support each other. Um, and, and yet the, the idea of competition, because competition is good, uh, that, that is completely wrong in relation probably to the effectiveness of organisations and certainly to the happiness of people at work or when we're talking about social media and, and uh, your private life in general. Competition is not a good idea. Okay, uh, I think there was a woman here, and then I'll take the two of you in the front. <coughs> uh, the woman in the pink. Uh. Thank you. Um, my name is Lucy Farnborough. I'm founding a, um, a startup that's related to young people and well-being. Um, and my, my question is um, that Dominic Cummings has said that he wants to change the... Met, the economic metric that um, investment is made in the most deprived areas of the UK, mm. and he wants to change that from I think it's is it gross added, gross value added, and he says he wants to change that and that that metric to be based on other factors, mm. more related to well-being and other outcomes that are not just based on economic factors. And I just so my question was whether you've been 
whether you've been asked to be involved in this, in this sort of changing of policy. Mm. What's the so, last question? I heard the, so rest of it. the question is uh, Dominic Cummings has argued that we need to change the metrics no, for success away from value added and GDP and include other measures like well being. And the question is uh, what's your view on that and have you been involved in that thinking? Well, I want to be involved. <laughs> but um, as far as I've gathered so far, um, He's making a very simple point, which people have made for, 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 uh, forever, mm. which is that a pound is, not, is worth more to a poor person than it is to a rich person. Mm. Um, and therefore, um, if in, in London uh, you say that the value of a crossrail um, per pound spent is one pound ten, let's say, um, and in uh, what, 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 what's the constituency? I can't think of the name. Sedgefield. Mm. And in Sedgefield, Tony's constituency. Mm. In Tony's constituency, um, it's, it, it's, uh, it's 90p. So more in London than, in, than in, in Sedgefield. But the people in London don't need money as much as the people in Sedgefield need. Um, you should weight these numbers <coughs> by a distributional weight. That's the phrase that's used in the Green Book. Mm. The, the contribution that we can make from happiness science is that we know what the distributional weights so. should be yeah. because you, you can fit a curve linking happiness on this axis to income on this axis and you'll find it goes like that and you can find what that curvature is and you'll find actually that um, a pound for um, a poor person uh, is worth ten times more than for a person who is ten times richer. So what Dominic Cunningham is saying, we should, when we're doing a rail project um, in Sedgefield, uh, even if the amount that the Sedgefield people are willing to pay for it is less than the people in London are willing to pay for a, a project of equal cost, the, the people in Sedgefield should have it. Okay. There were two people here. Sorry, but, but, but I hope he wants to do more than that. <laughs> well, that would be a good start, yeah. to kind of do distributional weighting. Well, they're meant to be doing it already. They are meant to be doing it already. The truth is they've never they they never do. it. I mean, so they never implement it. The Green Book the says you should use distributional weights, and yet the HS2 evaluation has none. It's, it's completely... Yes. Uh, my name is Clive Brook. I'm one of Lord Layard's apprentices or students <laughs> in the uh, You mentioned um, the post-God era and the post-religious society. And you talked about self-absorption. Do you think it's time for a new God? <laughs> and uh, if we're looking for a new God, how different would the new God be from the old God. <laughs> okay. Do well, you want me to repeat that question? <laughs> What's the new God? I, I, I think that the, the new God, God um, should be that we help each other to enjoy our lives and to be satisfied with, with, with uh, and fulfilled. Um, and, and I think an awful lot of people, for a lot of people, that's enough. Uh, 
some people would find it ha easier to have the word divine attached to that objective. Um, but a lot of people wouldn't find it helpful, so I, I, I tend to just stick with that phrase. Uh, that, that, uh, that's um, the, the most um, uplifting goal, which I'm, I want to propose because I think we can get the most support for it. Mm. Okay, person in front of you. Hi, thanks very much for your talk. My name's Jo, I'm a psychologist, and I was just thinking about the importance of giving and getting away from self-absorption, and I'm just wondering about the research evidence of giving, unpacking giving a bit, just thinking to be a giver you need recipients, just a bit more about, if you could say a bit more about giving. Okay. So research evidence on giving and the benefits of giving. Yes. Um, there are these clever experiments um, in which uh, Manoush was given £100 uh, to spend on herself and I was given £100 to spend on other people. Um, and I think before the experiment we were both asked which we think would make us happier. Uh, and I think that the finding was that most people thought they would be happier if they were given it the money to spend on themselves. Mm. But they were then asked... Um, at the end of the experiment, how happy they were. And the people who had been given the money to give to other people were happier than the uh, ones who, who weren't holding constant their initial position. Mm. Um, and there are a lot of those experiments. Um, there's also a lot of naturalistic experiment, uh, evidence you know, that people who do give are happier, but that doesn't really establish causality. Um, but it's, it's, I think it's significant and interesting. Um, but I'm, I think there's a great deal more to be done on this because I think that... Well, I'm amazed, to be perfectly honest. I mean, we are here in a social science institution. If, if I look, which I do, I have done, for time series of how altruistic people are... Mm. Nobody seems to have bothered to ask questions about what people have been trying to do in their lives. Well, I, I sometimes want... No, I mustn't be rude. But I do, I do wonder what sociologists think really matters. I mean, how, how come that they haven't asked people year after year what they're trying to do in their lives? It, it's extraordinary. I've not been able to get more than a very few observations on this big issue we've been talking about, like... To what extent do you, do, are you motivated to help other people as opposed to advance yourself? Yeah. It's, it's very, very surprising. There's some um, interesting research being done here at the LSC, Nava Ashraf and others, on what they call altruistic capital and how doing things that are good for other people is like capital in organizations and that it actually increases productivity of the organization as a whole and is an asset uh, to think about. It's quite interesting body of work. I think I have time for two more questions. Okay. I'll, I'll, yeah? mm -hmm. I'll take, how about I take these two gentlemen here and maybe I'll come back to you at the end as well. Hi, my name's uh, Mark Anderson. I'm a civil servant. Um, you've talked about social infrastructure and physical infrastructure. I just wondered if you could say something about the relationship between well-being and uh, our natural resource base. Okay. So relationship between well-being and our natural resource base, as opposed to physical and social infrastructure. Well, if you mean saving the planet... <laughs> and the environment as a um, whole, I think, yeah. 
And I mean, what's become obvious, hasn't it, um, is that we're, the constraint is, is the, the climate um, rather than most, most elements in the resource base. So, um, I mean, if, if we were to use all the resources, we have, the energy resources we, have, we, we know we already have, um, you know, we'd be underwater. Um, so so the, 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 the constraint is, is the climate, and uh, that is, is t absolutely massive constraint, and we're not giving enough priority to it. And it's time that we did not quite necessarily what Extinction Rebellion say, but something a lot, lot better than um, what has been agreed by those who are aiming at carbon neutral by 2050. And what about the relationship between the natural environment and mental health and well-being? I see. Oh, the, well, there's, there's obviously the, the green space uh, issue and the relation with nature, uh, which is incredibly important. We've got a colleague. Is Chris here? No. Yeah, he is. I mean, Chris has done wonderful research showing how much happier people are who live in towns who have green space near where they live. Um, that is very important. What turns out to be much less important is being uh, uh, relatively near to you know, the big open countryside, um, which of course is evidenced by the fact that our, on, a, on a nice hot day, our parks are absolutely sw swarming with people and you can walk in the green belt for two you know, for two hours and, and meet nobody. I mean, <laughs> I love walking, but uh, I think anybody who, who wants to re-establish the link between humans and nature, I'd better do it inside towns rather than outside. <laughs> <laughs> okay, gentleman here, and then last one, I'll take the woman in the back. Um, my name's Chris Shaw, I'm an economic student here at LSE. Um, obviously, there's a load of fantastic research going on into well-being economics and happiness science at the CEP and elsewhere. How soon do you think we'll see a course in that for students um, feeding off that research at LSE? And if not, why not? Great question. So um, when will all of this fantastic research be applied to students at the LSE? Excellent. Well, I'm working on that. <laughs> well, funnily enough, Dilly Fung, who's back there, uh, and I had exactly that conversation this well, morning. I'll tell you the conversation <laughs> I want to have. Yes? Um, which is that um, at Yale... Um, the, 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 there's a first year course, I think it's called Psychology and the Good Life. And so it's about all of what we've been talking about. Hmm. Um, it ha it's, has more, more students than any other course at Yale. Uh, recently, at Harvard, the same, the same was true at Harvard, I'm not sure if it's still true now, but there are about 10 universities I know, top universities in the States, which have such a course. Um, hugely popular and definitely good for the mental health of the student body. Um, and uh, we don't. LSE 100 module. We're on the case. All right. We're, uh, we will look into this, Richard. Uh, I think there was a woman in the back corner right there. Hi there. My name's Aruj. I'm also a civil servant. Um, do you think you found happiness? Do you think... Do you think that you found happiness? Uh, 
Do you think you have found happiness, Richard? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> um, actually, I've always been a fairly happy person, but of course up and down. Every, everybody goes up and down over the day. And of course, one reason you go down is actually if you're trying to do something which you think will improve human happiness, you're absolutely certain to get frustrated. <laughs> Uh, so you go up and down, but um, I mean, I've been reading this stuff a lot more in the last 20 years than before, and I definitely benefit. I mean, I do think that we... A really important point is that we can, by our thoughts, um, influence our feelings. Um, we're not the victim of our, our circumstances. Uh, uh, to, not totally. We are, of course, partly influenced by our past and our present. But we can choose, and I, I always love the Viktor Frankl phrase. And, you know, Viktor Frankl was uh, an Auschwitz survivor, and he, he always said the last of human freedoms is the freedom to choose your attitude to your circumstances. And I think that, that is a very, very powerful, perhaps a good moment, note to end on, yes. Very good, very good. Well, I hope you join me in thanking Richard for teaching us the more. <laughs>